Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out all the stuff that we've been riding and reviewing recently over at blisterreview.com. And if you are planning to camp in the Gunnison Valley soon, please make sure you're up to date on the latest camping regulations, which have changed recently. We've included a link in the show notes with everything you need to know. Okay, so just a few months ago, we had Chris Porter of Mojo Suspension and Geometron Bikes on to talk about everything he's been up to, and as we found out, Chris is one of the more interesting figures in the mountain bike world, and has opinions to offer on a whole range of topics. If you haven't checked that out yet, you should definitely jump back to episode 64 of Bikes and Big Ideas to catch my first conversation with Chris. But there was a whole lot that we didn't get to in that first chat, and since I've just started spending time on the Geometron G1, we figured it was a good time to get Chris back on the podcast to talk about that bike and how he chooses to set up his own bike, dual crown enduro forks and why we don't see more of them, EXT suspension, including the custom version of the Storia rear shock that the G1 runs, and a whole lot more. Chris has a whole lot of interesting thoughts to share, as always, so let's get right into our conversation. Well, Chris, good to have you back on the podcast. Thanks for coming on and glad to see your mobile recording studio is back in action just like last time. <laughs> Except it's parked outside the house this time and I've got myself a nice glass of wine. Meanwhile, for my part of this, I'm recording this sitting on a friend's front porch because my <laughs> house is in the midst of having loads of construction going on and a plumber tearing things apart. So it got very loud, very unexpectedly. But uh we're here, ready to go. Things are things are going well. So last time we had you on, we went through a whole lot of kind of your history in bikes and a bunch of the past of Mojo and Geometron bikes, but there's a whole lot we didn't get into. So I figured we'd have you back on to cover a whole bunch of the, the things we just weren't able to get to last time. And one of the things I wanted to start off with too, is that uh, we talked a bit about the G1 last time, the latest incarnation of the Geometron project. And since we last spoke, I've acquired one and started spending some time on it. And so far, it's been really impressive. Like we said last time, I've had a G16 as my own bike for the last four plus years and uh, have now got a G1 set up and been really impressed with it so far. Excellent. Really pleased to hear that. Really pleased. It's been so long since we did the project. It's uh, almost easy to forget how much of a difference it was. <laughs> <laughs> and when you look at the uh, when you look at the geometry charts and the the numbers, there's not much has changed. But the things that we did change, yeah, we think they made a nice difference. Yeah, that's definitely been my experience so far too. Like you said, it's not dramatically different in some ways, but it's it's sort of more a an accumulation of a bunch of relatively small improvements that have all added up to making a very real difference yeah i guess you know if you just like everything is just really honed like having a really good day on the bike every day you ride just all the little uh inconsistencies and possibilities for those inconsistencies to affect your riding we just tried to take away as much of those as we could so yeah one of the things that has stood out so far is that it I've just had a, a much easier time getting the kind of cockpit set up and fit feeling really good than I did on the G16. I think a lot of that's down to the stack being considerably higher on the G1 now and a little bit steeper C2 bangle, I think, is contributing as well, but uh, was able to kind of get things sorted pretty much from square one on that, whereas the, the G16 definitely took quite a bit more 
fiddling around on my end. And then another thing that has sort of seemed like a notable step forward for me is the fact that you've now got the uh, rear travel change option available with the same shock. So you're not having to swap the entirety of the shock around to change between the two different travel settings just makes things much easier to swap around. You don't have to have two different shocks. It's easier to make the change and not have to make such dramatic change to the dampers and have to be having two fully separate shocks that you're getting set up and so on. So that's that's been really positive. I would be curious to hear a little bit more about how you have yours, your personal bike set up generally since G1's got such a great array of geometry adjustment available and as we talked about in the first look that's up on the site, a huge range of different wheel size combinations you could run on it as well. So for my part, I've got a medium frame or longer size uh, and thus far I've been running it as a full 29er in the sort of stock geometry setting which is the short 33 millimeters chainstay mutators and no seat stay mutator as of yet but I've also got a really large pile of the mutators that I'll be doing a whole lot more experimenting with as we go on here but would be curious to hear what your typical setup is Chris I don't really have a typical setup David it's um it's something that changes if not every ride certainly changes a lot just to keep an eye on all the different possibilities and to try and understand all the different effects that all the different setup options have for as many people as possible so that you know if some of the lads in work are like in the full 29 setup with the shorter swing arm and some of the lads are like in mullet with longer swing arm or or vice versa all the way all you know all the different options are covered and the more we ride different setups, the more we can help our customers. But that said, I tend to always come back to mullet. Um, I spent quite a lot of time in the last few months on full 29 setup. Um, convinced myself I was really liking it. Uh, and then the first ride back on the mullet just felt so at home it's um i do really like that combination of the larger front wheel and the smaller rear wheel it does you know does actually do something different in the middle of the turn towards the end of the turn so so this year i ran 160 front and rear with cross-country 29 wheels with fast rolling tires for a while i tried Full 29 with, you know, full one 1.1 kilo tire setup um, with 170 for a while just to try and 175 on the rear just to, just to spend as much time as possible on the 29. And then currently I'm on the uh, dual crown, dual crown fork with 170 up front. I might move that up to 180 this week, um, try that, and with the long travel out the back. So, yeah, and tend to run the bottom bracket, similar height for whatever setup I do. I tend to run that always around the 330 to 335 millimeter bottom bracket. So, 
Right. Okay. So keeping that fairly consistent and just compensating with with the new data setup. If I if I ran it any lower, I'd just be dragging the pedals everywhere. And I've noticed that when I've tried flats with a really low profile pedal, it makes a big impact because my my preferred pedal setup is uh, a Shimano shoe with a Crank Brothers mallet downhill pedal, and with the little spacer under the cleat. I think you end up with quite a high stack height from your foot to the axle. Um, so I found that when I stick my feet on a pair of flat shoes and a flat pedal, I'll, I'll be dragging my feet on the outside of the turns. So I kind of, that's as far as I can get away with on my current shoe setup. And if I run flats, I tend to run them up to sort of 340, 345. So I've got the clearance. But again, the sort of static is, the static is neither here nor there, is it's the dynamic that matters. There's such small differences between all the bikes now on the statics. And, and yes, they do make a difference. You know, 10 millimeters here and there doesn't sound like very much, but you know, we've been experimenting with quite a lot of stuff lately and it does make a huge difference. You know, you add 10 millimeters to the swing arm, it makes a big difference. You add 10 millimeters to the front triangle, it makes a big difference. You add or remove 10 millimeters from the stem. All of these things make a big difference. But at the same time, with the, the adjustments that you've got with the suspension front and rear, the kind of dynamic position of the bike is the one that you should be looking for. And uh, Yeah, I mean, certainly dynamics what matters, right? It's what's happening while you're actually riding the bike and what have you. And, you know, I suppose static numbers can be sort of a useful starting point to attempt to compare things, but you do certainly need to be taking into account things like amount of travel and amount of sag you expect to be running in order to, to account for those if you're comparing bikes that have otherwise pretty different travel numbers or what have you. I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about your what keeps bringing you back to the Moet setup on the G1. Uh, you sort of mentioned a little bit about just kind of how the bike feels through the middle of the corner in particular as being something that you're enjoying about that. But can you expand on that a little bit? It's almost easier to explain what I tend to not like about the 29er than what I do like about the 27.5. And I think it comes from years of riding the motorcycle where if you're fighting the motorcycle through a turn it's possible to do and you can you can do a lot with your body weight but the more that you're fighting the motorcycle through the turn the less the contact patches are actually doing what they intuitively want to do so they're pushing harder uh than they intuitively want to push which means that one or other of those tires is closer to the edge of its grip limits than it would be if it was handling really sweetly and you didn't have to fight it and falling off on tarmac is not a lot of fun um so uh the idea that always came back to that ride in the mountain bike it's possible to it's possible to make a really bad handling bike handle really well. Um, you just watch any of the fast riders riding 
you know, bikes that are not sort of top of the list of best handling bikes around and they can do a really, really good job of it, but I'm just not that person. So I like to be able to tip the bike in and the bike responds in a natural way and starts to go around the corner in a really natural way. I don't really want to be, have to be aggressive with the bike or, or really fight it. And I'm too old school to be able to do, to do that too much as well. So I tend to, I tend to look for a, a corner handling that I don't have to fight, you know, that, that, intuitively leans and intuitively carves and intuitively puts me in the in the right place on the bike and and gives me good feedback as I'm entering the turn so that I can get the bike turned and then allows me to let my weight fall into the bike into the middle of the turn and onto the rear wheel as I come out of the turn and I'm not having to fight and pull myself forward and backwards and push the bike up and down. So yes, with the 29 setup, I find that there's a little space between committing to the turn and actually being hooked into the turn where I'm outside of that sort of feedback loop. I'm in a dead space where I just have to completely commit to it and hope that everything does as I imagine it will in the turn. And if you ride that full 29er setup in that fully aggressive and fully committed way, there's absolutely no doubt that you can make it work really, really well. I'm just, I've spent too many years teetering on the edge of front wheel grip just coming into turns on the tarmac and to be able to just go, okay, just smash it on your knee. You need everything to be working to, to throw the bike in hard. And, and that's what, that's what I like about the, uh, the mullet setup. It gives me feedback about what the bike is doing from the beginning of the turn through the middle of the turn and right to the end of the turn. Whereas with the, with the 29, as I tried to explain, I'm not sure I did a very good job of it. There's a sort of, there's a sort of feedback black hole at one point where the bike just wants to keep on moving and you've just got to commit, even though you think it's not starting its turn, you've got to just commit and just finish it off. And I'm just, I'm just not that rider. So yeah, that's not to say that it can't can't be done. You know, it's not to say people can't can't do it well, and it's not an option. And do you know what? In three years' time, maybe twenty seven five wheels will be phased out, and nobody will be making good tires, and we'll all have to ride twenty nine wheels. So <laughs> I'll just have to practice. <laughs> yeah, we'll see how that goes. I. I hope that 27.5 sticks around a bit, at least as an option for people. I mean, I, 29 certainly seems to be taking over increasingly large bits of market share, but it's nice to have the option at least. It is really interesting what you say about the the way the 29 or the full 29 setup versus the mullet kind of initiates a turn. And 
for my part, I jumping around between a ton of different bikes all the time in this role. And I've gotten very used to the way that a full 29er setup just turns generally and have spent a bit of time on a handful of different mullet bikes, but haven't ever haven't been on one yet that has felt entirely dialed to me in terms of how it initiates corners specifically is the thing that I've actually found to be a little bit, a little bit off about them in the past. And so I'm very curious to start spending some time on the G1 as a mullet to see if I can mess around with setup and all the different mutators and what have you and find a way that the mullet really starts to work for me because I haven't hit upon that yet, but I also haven't had the chance to do it on a bike with so much possibility to adjust it to in so many different ways and try to find an ideal setup. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah. And I think there's, you know, there are other things as well because, um, in many ways it's easier now to find a good narrow profile tire 2.3 to 2.4 for 29 than it is for 27.5. So you end up, if you go in mullet with a big bouncy 2.6 or bigger tire on the back or even a 2.5, you know, that it's going to resist turning. So it's not going to be the ideal setup. I tend to run a nice narrow tire on the back and if anything, try and get a bigger, flatter profile on the front so that the front remains calmer and the rear can drop in and do a bit of work. So maybe that's what you're, you're feeling when you're riding the mullet setup bikes because they all tend, all the 27.5 bikes tend to be running with sort of wide trail style tires at the moment. I haven't been on any particularly big rear tires on those setups. It's been thinking back 2.4 Minion DHR2, 2.4 Schwab Big Betty, maybe a 2.3 DHR2. I can't remember exactly all the, all the different tires I've had on those, but it, it certainly hasn't been anything in the 2.5, kind of range. It's, it's, it's all been smaller than that. That's a big deal. Um, the tire profiles are a big deal with the steering as well, so they, m- they make a big difference to how things handle. Yep, definitely kind of the profile and degree of lean at which point the side knobs really start to engage and so on all, all certainly adds up to really being meaningful. There you go. Mullet is what I'm mullet is what I'm doing at the moment. And, but it's like you were what you were saying earlier on about your G sixteen and how thing you know, there's some numbers changed on it. But if you think about it when the G sixteen was done uh first, it was full twenty seven five and one sixty forks. And then a short time after the G16 was launched, the 27.5 forks had the possibility of going up to 180 travel. So we figured a way of doing the 180 travel on the rear, or 170. And, uh, and the higher front end with the 180 fork really improved the handling of the bike. And it'd be interesting to do that sort of back to back again now and sort of go back a step to the 27.5 wheels on full 160 and then just stick a 180 front fork on and just see how that really changes the bike. Because you've, 
lifted the front end of the bike quite a lot by adding the extra travel, which is the same as putting that bigger front wheel in terms of the handling because you've just lifted that head tube. So one of the more important things that that does is it changes the angle of the contact patch of the rear wheel in relation to the to the fixed part of the chassis, if you like. So if the front wheel's got a steering angle that rotates around the head tube, the rear wheel's got a steering angle that is fixed to the lean angle of the frame. And the higher the, the head tube goes, the more that rear wheel can do some steering. And that's... Um, and you, you had quite an experiment with um, the dual cranes on your G16, didn't you? So, yep, done a fair bit of that as well. Yeah. So, and did you find that raising that front end made quite a difference to how the bike turned in the middle of the? Yeah, a bit. I was running the dual crowns lowered a little bit, and so the it was a bit more travel, but the actual axle to crown height wasn't varying too dramatically from what I was running with a single crown prior to that. I mean, a dual crown generally shorter at a, for a given amount of travel than single crown would be. And so it wasn't, I wasn't changing the geometry too wildly in doing that. More of the point was just getting a, a much stiffer fork. And, you know, you have a, a bike with its head tube angle that slack. And especially from some of the single crown forks of a few years ago, you got things getting very flexy very quickly and i wasn't too happy with it that's still something that needs to be addressed really you know the dual crane enduro fork is still something that needs to be done let's get right into that that was a little bit lower on my list in here but uh yeah let's do that now so i have been hoping for some more options for dual crown enduro forks for quite a while now having had done that experiment with putting a 40 on my g16 like we just mentioned and Liked a lot about the way it rode, but obviously it's also a rather heavy fork and bit overkill for a lot of the time. And so having something that kind of bridges the gap between a single crown and a full DH dual crown is something that I'd be very interested in. And well, we're sort of maybe starting to see a little bit of movement in that direction, not the least of which being the Mork 36 dual crown conversion that you guys have been working on. And I think is the setup that you just alluded to that you've been running on your bike. Tell us a little bit more about that, and or maybe I'm wrong about in that guess. Yeah, well, you're, you're wrong about the guess, but yeah, I have been running that as well. Um, but yeah, the um, the Mork, yeah, just it was a, it seemed like an obvious thing to do to make a a dual crown sort of upgrade for a popular fork, so that you could get an adjustability in the offset without paying for a, a new crane steering unit. And you could get a lot more stability and accuracy from the strength of the, the dual cranes and the longer stanchion rather than the single crane. And on top of that, you get a benefit that everything just works better because everything's just that little bit stiffer so everything is pointing more in the same direction instead of one leg pointing forward and the other leg pointing backwards as you're going into a turn. It's literally just a little bit stiffer so that the fork bushings work a little bit better. Um, 
and because of that the damping can you can feel the damping a little bit better and the progression in the air spring you can feel that a little bit better instead of just feeling all these non-progressive inputs from the stiction that's been hell of a process trying to get that going but we kind of got a small batch of those uh going now and we're we're bolting those into uh customers forks as we speak but the other one that i've been riding is um the dual crane from formula as well so they've done a a, a prototype dual crane enduro fork which they showed at um Italian uh, show recently and it is a a specific enduro dual crown fork it's super lightweight still very stiff because it's dual crown and it works very well it's it's no surprise really um, that uh, something that's dual crown works better than a single crown um, <laughs> but it's uh, actually been thought about as an enduro fork because it's as you were saying earlier it's just not heavy it's actually less than the the zeb and the 38 right that's exactly what i was going to say is that, that very excited about that saw some discussion of the prototype and uh hoping to be able to get on one somewhere down the line here but um i'd be curious to hear why you think sort of just the concept of dual crown enduro forks in general, not looking at any specific implementation of them, but the category in general, why has that not taken off better? Because, you know, we've been seeing all this movement of the the big companies, Fox and RockShox making, you know, the Zeb and the 38, like you just said, making this push into making their single crowns stiffer and going heavier. And there seems to have been very wide acceptance of those as a good idea so I don't think it's that there's not interest in a beefier fork that you still pedal around on. And I'm, yeah, I'm curious. I haven't got my head around why that there hasn't been more interest in making those sorts of things, dual crowns. You're crediting them with too much sort of, um, how do I say this without offending someone? You're crediting them with too much intelligence. What we are in as an industry is more of a fashion industry than a, performance industry so um in the same way that you know you go to a fashion shop um and you look at the the jeans or the t-shirts or whatever is on show it's going to be the same as the next fashion shop and the same as the next one and the same as the next one they'll be virtually the same because no one's got the balls to do something different um, they look at each other and see what's selling, and they'll just all end up copying. And that's what is going on with the mountain bike market. They're just selling the same as everyone else. You know, someone comes out with a 38, someone else comes out with a 38. Yeah. Someone comes out with a triple air chamber someone else comes out with a triple air chamber there's no it's not it's not done for any performance benefit it's done to have a a new feature for the marketing team to work with um 
So it's marketing led, not engineering led. So, you know, if we're talking about the Zeb and the lyric and things like that, the 2019 lyric was a really excellent fork. Um, it was really simple to set up. Um, you could pretty much set the tokens by the travel. Uh, you didn't really need to worry too much about rider input or uh, rider weight. Um, you could pretty much set all that with pressure. And it was a really nice fork. And one of the reasons it was really nice fork was it had a really long negative air chamber. And one of the upsides of having a really long negative air chamber is that it was really supple off the top. Really, really nice because it never sort of got to full top out. So the improvement that RockShox made to that fork was at, I'm guessing, at the request of the product managers who were getting requests from their customers who were saying, I've got a 160 fork. Why does it say 155 on the stanchion? Now, so they went back to the shorter air chamber and everyone that had the previous lyric bought the new air chamber or bought the new lyric and it's not as good. And instead of taking what was good about the original lyric and then making, looking for the things that they can improve and improving those little things, it's just a case of reacting to the market rather than driving the market. So the product managers are complaining that they can't see 160 on the fork. So instead of just taking the anodizing off the fork, <laughs> having a great working fork and just telling people, this is how you set it up. They just shortened the air chamber again. And it was not as nice. There's no way you can describe it as anywhere near as nice. The original one was much better. The original Debonair spring was much better. Then, to solve the problem with that fork, we get a completely new fork. And the problem with designing problems out by designing new products is you're more likely to bring in new problems than solve the problems that you had. And that's, I think, that happens a lot in the bicycle industry. You know, if you get a bicycle that has a particular issue, then it will, rather than that particular issue being addressed with the redesign and a new prototype to check, um, you'll just get a complete new model. And that ha that has happened with the forks as well. So those forks haven't been made for performance gains they've just been made because it's new and because they've got some time on the production line and they want to produce a, a fork that has a different name the i still think the original 2019 lyric is a better fork than well any of the the current new 38s if you like <laughs> or 36s, but 
nobody's making it anymore. <laughs> We've designed, d- designed, designed away the problem of the five millimeter on the stanchion, and yeah, it's not as good. Yeah, I have to say, I am with you on that redesign of the air spring having been a step backwards in those, which uh, is unfortunate. And I think I think you're absolutely right that it was sort of a a change that was made by due to some consumer complaints about published travel numbers and what have you. And it would have been nice to have seen that addressed with more just sort of education to consumers about how to set things up rather than redesigning the product to, to work around it. But, uh, yeah, but again, you know, as I, as I said, you know, to, 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 to wonder why we don't have more dual crane enduro forts is to credit them with, yeah, maybe too much, too much intelligence, um, because that's not. Although there are great people in all of those design departments and all of those, um, all of those companies, that's um, those great people are always fighting a losing battle inside a corporate structure to try and get stuff done. <laughs> I do wonder, and I don't know how, how if this is how true this is or not, but I have had the thought that it, there might be a little bit of a chicken and egg problem there also, where a whole lot of kind of contemporary enduro bikes are specifically not rated for a dual crown fork per their manufacturers. And I can definitely imagine it being the case that if you're Fox or RockShox, say, you would be somewhat reluctant to push out a dual crown enduro fork that a large number of people would not officially be allowed to run on their bike to, you know, preserve warranty and whatnot per the, per the manufacturer of that frame. And so that I think might be holding things back a bit too. Yeah. No, I mean, I, in, in use, a fork that works better is going to put less stress into the head tube of the bike that it's bolted to than a single crane fork that works less well in in normal use. If you crash that fork and rotate it to the stops, then obviously those stanchions are going to hit the, the down tube, which you can pad with your fork stops. If you haven't put enough material in your head tube that you don't think it'll survive a crash on a dual crane bike, then it's simple. Put more material in. If you don't think your head tube is strong enough to take a dual crane fork, then it's not safe to ride. If you're literally saying in your warranty manual that we will not cover warranties for a dual crane fork because our head tube's not strong enough, then your head tube's not strong enough, mate. I mean, it's simple. If if you weigh 60 kilograms and I weigh 100 kilograms and you're riding um, on a dual crane fork and I'm riding on a single crane fork, um, who do you think's putting more energy through the head tube? You know, it's just not, yeah, it's not strong enough. So don't, yeah, don't come with the, it's not strong enough for a dual crane because then it's not strong enough. <laughs> right. I think in most of the cases, the people who are concerned about it, the companies who are concerned about it, are looking at it from the as- this, uh, point of view of just the impact to the side of the head tube, down tube area, uh, due to yeah crashing on a dual crown, which 
I mean, like you said, certainly there is a very simple solution to that. But at the same time, I can understand why a company wouldn't be taking the steps to reinforce that area for a bike that they don't expect to ever want to be run with a dual crown because the dual crown enduro fork that you would hypothetically put on it doesn't really exist in the market in any meaningful way, at least not in any kind of large numbers and widespread usage. So I don't know. I mean, again, this is probably predominantly an issue with carbon frames too. And Yeah. But these are the companies that said, oh, we don't need, we don't need guards on the bottom of our frames because they're strong enough that you don't need to worry about a rock strike. And then they start designing in guards on the bottom of their down tubes. Are we getting new, new types of rock strike? Are we? And these down tube guards are always little pieces of piddly plastic um, over what is supposed to be stronger carbon. Um, so, you know, it's like, just make the bike stronger. If it's the right material and you can make it a bicycle strong enough and light enough, then do so. If it's not the right material, then make it out of something else. Yeah, they're, they're just not making just not making frames strong enough. Um, if if you look at how hard Jack Moyer's riding his bike and how hard Richie Rude's riding his bike and how hard you know any of the other drugs cheats that are out there racing Enduro World Series that are racing their bikes, they're riding their they're riding their Enduro bicycles very very hard and. I think they would all benefit from having a, a dual crown enduro weight fork instead of the 38s or the Zebs or whatever they're running. Um, they would be much better off um, with a with a dual crown option. But if the bikes aren't strong enough, then build a better bike. Would be my repost, quite simply. Well, to circle back to that formula a little bit, anything more you can tell us about that fork? Not really. It's um, I, I rode a prototype version, and it's really nice. Um, what what I rode had a lot of parts from the Salva, um, which is already really nice, um, and it's had new specifically designed crowns. Uh, to do the job, yeah, it's um, just a well finished, well put together dual crown prototype. Um, I think due to be ready, sort of end of this year, early next year. So yeah, it looks really good. Yeah, I'm quite excited about that, and hoping to be able to get on one when they're ready. So. Uh yeah, curious, curious to find out more, but very into the concept and glad that someone's having a go at making a more more dedicated dual crown enduro fork. And it's, you know, quite adjustable as well, obviously, you know, with a, a head tube of a decent size, there's a certain amount of adjustment you can do geometry-wise with a dual crown fork up and down, um, as long as you've got your tire clearance for the lower crown. Um, but also they've got you know a bit of travel adjust in there as well, so you can run that one sixty to one eighty if you want. So 
potentially some increased ability to mess around with offset headsets as well, given that you've presumably got a straight one and an eighth steer rather than a tapered one, a little more real estate in the head tube to fiddle about there too. Well, I think, you know, as time goes by, there's less and less need for all of that stuff anyway. More more bikes are coming with enough room for a tall rider or even a small rider. Um, and more bikes are coming with half decent head angles. So there's not that much that is desperately old fashioned that needs that sort of inserts in the head tube thing anymore. And anything that old fashioned, you probably wouldn't be putting a brand new enduro dual crane fork on anyway. Yeah, that's fair enough. <laughs> I think there are most most people are coming around sort of 64 to 63 degree head angles now, 77 to 78 degree seat angles, all putting in a certain amount of adjustment for the bottom bracket height, but all sort of pitching in around 335 to 345. Yeah, most of the reaches on most of the current bikes are getting longer. So, yeah, I, I, I don't see things like that being an issue anymore trying to make your your current bike work better of course there's a market for that but you probably wouldn't be putting a brand new dual crane enduro fork on that sort of 10 year old bike at the moment so yeah that's that's all true enough um and you're certainly right that geometry is kind of moving forward to a lot closer to what you you've been working on for quite a while and seeming to seeming to sort of settle down a little bit so yeah apart from the gravel bike atrocities that are going on at the moment people riding gravel bikes for goodness sake um but uh yeah it seems like but bikes get really nice and then we as an industry find a way to ride a shitter version (laughs) need to think of something else to change and uh yeah I know. Let's ride a road bike off-road. Yeah, let's do that. No, let's not. Let's not. Let's ride mountain bikes. They're great. Well, to keep talking about suspension a little bit, another big sort of project you've been involved in a fair bit that we've not discussed yet is all of the work you've done with EXT and development on their end. So I've spent quite a bit of time on the story or rear shock now uh, ran one of those on my G16 for quite some time and then now have the sort of special version for the G1 on that that we'll we can chat about in a minute which so far I've been quite impressed with and frankly maybe you've been a little bit surprised at uh, how much of a difference some of those tweaks have made over the version that I've got on the G16 but um, sort of the, the two headline things are the fact that the version on the g1 comes with spherical bearings in the eyelets so yeah and then uh has added a coil negative spring i'd be curious to hear about uh sort of how those concepts came about particularly the coil negative spring was that something that you approached exd and said hey we'd like to add this to the the version that we're specking on the g1 can we make this happen or how did all that come about and what was the thinking behind it well, if you go, go back again to that um, uh, anecdote about the Lyric, the 2019 Lyric, the reason it worked so well is because it had a lot of negative travel. So at rest, the fork is balanced, positive to negative, and there's a lot more poss- possibility for the axle to travel in the negative direction. 
So when you pick up the front of a bike with a 2019 Lyric on, you actually get bike sack. So the the rear wheel, sorry, the front wheel will actually drop the fork a little further into the negative travel just from the weight of that front wheel. And then you put the bike back on the floor and it just settles back down into its travel because it's got a long period of uh, travel where the the pressure on both sides is all is very similar. The shorter negative spring you have, the shorter distance you have of similar pressures. If you had a 160 mil positive and a 160 mil negative chamber, then it's going to have a, a, a really easy movement around the start of the travel at the full extension position. Um, obviously, that would be ridiculous, but having a longer negative travel always gives you a nicer initial touch. And if you allow the fork to recover really nicely for, uh, or, or the shock for a nice, dynamic, poppy, lively ride, then it's possible that you can end up bouncing towards the end of this short negative chamber. Whereas if you've got the long negative chamber, you've got no extra input into the chassis. It, abs- it absorbs all of it because the, the wheel has plenty of distance to go into that negative before it hits a top out or ramps up onto a really stiff air chamber, which means that the longer the negative chamber, the less input you get into the chassis at those full extension things while the front wheel's hopping across the tops of the bumps. Now, that holds true for the rear wheel as well, but the rear wheel is even heavier. Um, So if you have just a very short rubber top-out stop with a three-to-one ratio and something like three or four kilos of unsprung weight, um, then it's easy to see how when the rear shock fully extends, you have a lot of input into the chassis. And if the chassis is in the air, that can make a big difference to to the position of the chassis when it comes back onto the ground. So we wanted to support the weight of the rear wheel, that unsprung weight, fully onto a negative spring so that it never reaches full extension. Actually, in use with clips and a really fast rebound setup, you can actually pull the bike far enough fast enough away from the suspension that you can make the G1 top out, run out. But in normal usage, with your heels down and riding properly, um, there's no top out. And the rear wheel weight is always suspended so that when, when it hits the next bump or the initial touch of the next bump, because the the weight of the rear wheel is fully suspended on that negative spring. It takes no effort at all to move the rear wheel. So, yeah, we got a really nice initial touch because of that negative spring. And when it's set up properly, you actually get, you know, quite a few millimeters of bike sag. It's a, it's a really nice, really lovely, super comfortable feel when you're t- 
top, bouncing over the tops of stuff. Really nice. That's definitely been my experience so far and have also, like you said, noted the significant amount of just bike sag under its own weight. I, that's interesting what you're saying about uh, the top out control being such a major consideration. And I guess I had been thinking more just about in terms of balancing breakaway forces right from t- the initial starting point, which is obviously not as great a, an issue on a coil rear shock since you don't have massive amount of effective preload like you do in an air spring on the positive side. No, you don't. But if you but if you have if you have a coil shock with zero preload, and even if you had zero pressure in the uh, reservoir and all of those things, if you zeroed all of those, um, then you've still got to put four kilos in to the rear wheel before it moves, because you're lifting you're trying to lift four kilos against that shock absorber. Do you see what I mean? So if you can support the weight of that on that negative spring, then the very slightest touch, 15 grams, 20 grams, 50 grams, will move the rear wheel. Just messing around with the G1 sort of in my garage, you, you can see start to move with an incredibly light touch. It's It's... Yeah. Very impressive in that regard. So that's certainly paid off a little bit. It's something that all of the bikes should have, really, all of the mountain bikes. Instead, we end up with shock mounting systems that are just guff. Um, there's a there's a British word for you, guff. You can figure it out, Google it, that's fine. But it's basically shit. Instead of isolating the suspension unit from the twist forces and... Um, any flex in the frame, we end up with mounting systems that try and reduce the flex in the frame by using the shock absorber as a strengthening strut. So like a trunnion mount, um, which, of course, (laughs) that's not what it was designed to do. So you end up with a lot of stiction in the system that needn't be there because again, you didn't build the frame strong enough. Um, but so we decided to eliminate the stiction uh, by going to spherical eyelet bearings, and we're not the first. There's loads of people who've done it before, and in mountain biking. Um, but what we decided to do at first is make them big enough to do the job. Um, so rather than making the spherical bearings fit the standard, we made our eyelets fit a decent sized spherical bearing. Um, So the eyelets are bigger, the shocks are longer and slightly heavier. Um, But believe it or not, a very good quality spherical bearing is still cheaper than a turned aluminium piece of crap that doesn't rotate very well from one of the bigger shock manufacturers. (laughs) Um, But the reason we did the sphericals was to eliminate that side loading so that we didn't get stiction. What we didn't realize was how much of a difference it would make because we didn't have a way of, we didn't have a way of testing it until we made it. You know, it's kind of 
there is no one else doing a decent job of it. So we can't, we can't take that shock absorber and test that theory until we've actually made it. And the first time I wrote it was actually quite an eye opener. You don't realize how much stiction there is in a normal plane bearing style, um, DU bearing style eyelet bushing until you eliminate it, until you change it to a spherical bearing that will rotate and will rotate with a little bit of side angle. Um, and it makes quite a big difference. So instead of instead of starting to stick and bind when you get to the middle of the turn, um, you end up with a situation where the rear shock actually carries on moving, carries on reacting to your inputs and the trail inputs. Um, so it doesn't overload the front wheel. Um, so to get the bike balance back, you can put more compre compression damping on. So this is an interesting one. David, have you found yourself using slightly more high-speed compression for feel on the G1 compared to the G16? Yeah, I do think I'm running it a little bit stiffer. And I, on the G1 in particular, I am still definitely working on suspension tuning. So try that. You'll, you'll notice that the, the damping is consistent. So you can, you can feed in some feedback using the high-speed compression dial so that you can feel something under your feet. But that's completely predictable, whereas the stiction is not predictable. Right. Um, so you'll end up reducing damping on the G16 to try and get the, sh the bike to settle into the turn or increasing both compression and rebound on the G16 to change the bandwidth of how much suspension movement you get in the turn. Whereas on the G G1, because everything it does at the rear wheel is completely predictable, there's no stiction from side loading of the bushes you can use the damping to produce the feel that you want and the bandwidth of shock travel that you want um instead of instead of it being dictated to by the stiction yeah that makes quite a bit of sense and particularly the bit you said about sort of not noticing how much stiction there is and things until you try something that's better and n realizing what you had been missing out on yeah. this whole time really makes a lot of sense, particularly yeah. having done some experimenting. Well, that uh, going from a long travel 36 of, on my G16 all those years ago to the to the 40 and sort of seeing just how much the the single crown had been binding up, kind of particularly under situations where you're on something steep, braking fairly hard and hitting bumps well on the brakes and flexing the fork fore aft significantly. The, uh, it's the, that area in the middle of the turn again um, where you're transitioning from loading the front wheel to loading the rear wheel more and that lack of stiction on the rear shock will just feed the weight from the front to the rear and on the, on the bumps it'll transfer it to the front in a much more predictable manner so you can 
add add more with damping rather than trying to get rid of some stiction with get rid of some compression feel with reducing damping you can actually start adding it in because there's no compression feel from the stiction on the spherical bearings that's the top and bottom of it isn't it it's like you're you're not getting some support and some feedback from the stiction so you can just put it in with the damping instead much more predictable yep that all checks out and have yes like i said certainly been extremely impressed with it so far we'll be spending a lot more time on it as we go forward here and we'll be doing a lot of tuning and messing around but see how it all goes but uh yeah and early impressions have been great and very pleased so far excellent speaking of forks and and binding while we're on the subject of ext let's talk about the era a little bit we just ran our review of that was quite impressed with that as well and i think one of the things that ext talks a whole lot about in their sort of marketing of that is just the various steps that they've gone to to minimize friction minimize binding and one of the things we talked about a bit in that review is when i cracked the fork open was looking at it you've just got a all all of the sort of sliding assemblies the seal heads and whatnot are quite a bit more complex parts with extra glide rings and whatnot that you don't necessarily see in forks for most other manufacturers and so it's sort of a case where they've done a whole lot to add parts and add a bit of complexity and presumably that's driving cost a bit and it's it's certainly not an inexpensive fork but it's it's very clear what they that they've made a real point of doing everything they can to keep things moving, minimize binding, and we found that did really pay some dividends on like on trail. It uh, does an impressively good job of not like we've been talking about here, not binding up, not doing kind of just strange, unpredictable things when you're loading it very heavily, and works very well as a result. They definitely spent a lot of time on, yeah, as you said, if you've opened it up and you've had a look at it, you can see that there's a lot of effort gone into every single component. There's no cheap option inside. (laughs) Everything is uh, really nicely done. And there there are, you know, other ways that they've got around any unpredictability in the stiction as well by using that hybrid spring system so that you eliminate a small amount of seal friction from the initial touch because you're just using the hybrid spring that is almost the lowest only the the bushing tolerances are a lot lot tighter than other people use and the bushing material is a lot harder than everyone else uses so that they can run a much tighter tolerance Um, and that means that you get a more consistent feel for longer and you get a sort of consistency you know sometimes you'll you'll get a good fork and sometimes you'll get a bad fork and that you know that happens with um motorcycle stuff as well i i bought ktm earlier on this year and it's probably the 15 15 or 20 off-road KTMs I've bought in the last 20 years and it's got a really good fork on it probably 80% of the ones I've had have not had a really good fork on them but 
two or three have had really lovely forks and the tolerance stacks on a motorcycle fork are much larger um and you get that inconsistency between a good one and a bad one you could say the same about most bicycle forks with the tolerance stacks um you know despite cnc machining and despite um magnesium casting there's a lot of ways for measurements to be different um and those tolerance stacks can add up to you know a really nice let's say zeb fork or a really sticky zeb fork um so that's what ext have kind of focused on um with their production to make sure that everyone gets the same experience um that the there's consistency in what they do um and by doing that they've spent more money <laughs> internally <laughs> than uh, uh most most others would uh if you could pull the cartridge apart you'd you'd see uh, uh, an even bigger stack of parts <laughs> it's incredible um glide rings and seals no uh, don't it's complicated um but if if you ever come over or get get yeah i'm sure you'll be up to see maybe ben at um alba distribution he'll do it for you he'll show you around would really love to get in, into that and see one but yeah i've just had the the spring side you know lowers off and the spring side apart just what was going on in there was was pretty interesting and pretty different than most of what's out there and uh if people are curious there are a whole load of photos of that in our review on the site we'll throw a link in the show notes to that so you can see some of what's going on in there but uh pretty cool fork pretty impressive product how much did you have to do in the development of that i know you've worked with ext a fair bit on a range of stuff but just curious what your relationship with them was for that bit they asked for a lot of input at the start of the project um but right at the start of the final development processes as ext started to get prototypes out um the the covid situation got in the way so the last time we saw them and it was december 2019 um so any input we had was a lot more long-winded than the input from their local riders so it's yeah it's been a difficult process being involved in trying to get um, testing done because everything just takes a lot longer. And, but luckily, they've got some really good local riders um, who are, you know, shit hot with feedback, and they've done they've done a, a very good job with it. So, but I'd say, you know, apart from you know some broad brush ideas of you know what we'd like to see given the parameters that they had for production, it's EXT's fork. They've done a really good job with it from a, from a stand-in start, you know, with no, no real experience since, you know, they started the project in 2019, and here we are with a, a finished fork that's right up there. People are saying what you're saying, you know, up there with the best. So, 
yeah, it's it's really good for it. People would be curious. Do you know if there was ever any any thought about possibly making it a dual crown or a dual crown version or anything, or is that was that not really ever on the table? That wasn't an option for a first fork. Um, they really just wanted to learn how to do certain things. They've not um, they've not worked with those the types of manufacturing that you see in a bicycle fork. So the magnesium lowers, the pressed stanchions, all of these things, you you just don't see those types of things in the suspension that they do for their other sports, for rallying, for side-by-side, for, um, for motorcycle, for, you know, you just don't see... Um, those types of fixings so that they wanted to minimize the amount of experimenting, I suppose, and just pitched at learning to do a good job with the setup that everyone else is using. Um, they just need to learn how to do a good job of it and, and where they can make improvements. Fair enough. Yeah, I can imagine. If you're entering a market, it probably is a, a much easier th- sell if you're doing something with doing it with something that looks a bit more conventional and isn't as dramatic an adjustment for for the average consumer. So yeah, that seems fair enough. The whole idea that a lot of a lot of the bicycle fork is dictated by other standards anyway. You know, the steerer has to go into a standard type of headset. Um, the crown has to clear a fairly standard clearance to the down tube. The wheel has to fit. The brake has to bolt on. The tire has to pass underneath the brace. There's not that much room to be clever in terms of the chassis of the fork. So, yeah, you end up, unless you're changing things completely, you end up with something that looks pretty similar to everyone else anyway, don't you? <laughs> yep. No, certainly kind of a, I don't know, double-edged sword, I suppose, with bike parts being so modular. It's not, you know, we're so used to being able to interchange things that, yeah, good and bad parts to that, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I said with the KTM, you know, um, I probably could swap KTM forts around amongst different KTM off-road motorcycles but um, most of the sort of more expensive road models that they make all of the parts are pretty much made for that model so KTM will order individual parts to build a full motorcycle they won't buy uh, you know, fork from RockShox, a drivetrain from SRAM, um, an engine from Bosch, um, saddle from WTB. You know, they don't do it like the bicycle industry do it. They actually order, draw, order, and build all the parts themselves. <laughs> um, and that that obviously creates limitations but it increases the possibilities to do something uh better or different 
the limitation is that there's a there's usually a six seven year design cycle on a motorcycle um whereas on a bicycle it's kind of one year um so there'll be new models every year if it wasn't for covid we'd pre- we'd be drowning under loads of new models um high pivot this track session alike that you know it would have been we'd have been drowning under a whole sea of them but because supply is quite short we'll just end up with the same old same old for a couple of years yeah definitely have been talking to a lot of companies who have been in that boat of having various things in the pipeline at run the way right now but uh just have had a hard time rolling new things out right now due to due to covid so uh we'll see what happens in the next few years as as things hopefully settle down but uh time will tell well, Chris, this has been a whole lot of fun again, and uh, I'm sure we could keep going for ages, but I should probably let you go here soon. Just to wrap things up here, though, last time you ended with the frankly excellent big idea that everyone should get just good at doing wheelies and that we would all be a whole lot happier and get along better as a group of people if everyone could do a wheelie. Do you have any big idea to follow that up with? Everyone should learn to ride a motorcycle because I think... Bicycles, motorcycles, they're amazing. I love them. I think they're great. And they're proof that God exists and he loves us, that he allowed us to have motorbikes. So there you go. I like it. Well, Chris, thanks again. Been fun as always and really great talking to you. Thanks, David. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And if you're enjoying these conversations, then we would really appreciate it if you would take 30 seconds to leave us a five-star rating or review in Apple Podcasts. I also want to say thanks to Chris for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. Thanks to Jed Yeiser for letting me record it on his porch at the last minute. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we will talk to you again soon. Bye, everybody.